Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. and welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today is with none other than Dr. Marion Small. Now, Dr. Small has been a big influence on many teachers' thinking around mathematics and numeracy, and I was really excited to speak to her about the changes she's seen in numeracy over the years. I also wanted to know how we might support concept-based practices in mathematics as uh, many provinces and states are going through a shift to more concept-based ideas. And also I wanted to know what she thought ways were to bring parents to an understanding of the new ways that we teach math. Now, she didn't disappoint. She spoke freely and openly about her experiences and gave some really interesting tips that I'm looking at uh, putting in place in my school. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at Intersection Ed, or even on Facebook. And we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Marion Small. Welcome, Dr. Small, to Intersection Education. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm really excited to have you on today because you've had a big impact on on many teachers' thoughts and my own thoughts around teaching math. And one of the particular areas that I wanted to speak to you right off the hop was was about effective questions. Okay. I've been following your work for quite a while, and, and I'm interested to know about the evolution or the updates to some of those kind of core philosophies around mathematic questioning that, that you might have. So do you have any updates for 2019? Anything that you've thought recently about questioning or anything that you've recently learned in this area? Sure. I'm not sure that I'd say my philosophy has changed at all. I think what changes is what I'm going to call details like, oh, yeah, I could do that or, oh, yeah, I could do that. So I don't think that I've changed my mind at all about the kinds of questions we should ask kids or, you know, wh- how often or any of those kinds of things. What I do think is we all have experiences and you try something and you think, oh, this would be a little bit better if I did blah, blah, blah. So for me, it's always an evolution of how could I say that just a little better? How could I make it work for just some more students than it works for now? Yeah, that's absolutely. Alberta is in the midst of a shift and we're moving towards this concept-based curriculum. And and actually, all, all of our, or most of our K-4 teachers are going to be really diving into this new curriculum. When you think about a concept-based curriculum... What kind of math structures or frameworks would you suggest that they put in place to have success with this new way of of teaching? Okay. So, A, I don't really think it's a new way. Um, (laughs) I think tons of teachers in Alberta who I have met 
have actually been teaching this way for quite a while. I think what's different really is just the framing of it in the document. Um, it used to have lists of achievement indicators, which were not very conceptual. They were more procedural. But the actual outcomes used to be conceptual, too. Um, it was just kind of the achievement indicators that if a teacher really focused on those might lead them to be more procedural. So I do think that for a very long time, Alberta teachers have been teaching in a conceptual way. So it's not a huge departure. At the same time, I work in lots of different places. And one of the places I work in a lot, we've developed sort of a, a, a structure called a three-part lesson where we focus initially on something to activate kids' thinking. Then kids work on some kind of problem, which is sort of concept problem-based learning. And then I think the part that I've done that's new and different for a lot of teachers is that what I'm going to call the consolidation of the lesson, the pulling it all together for the, with the kids, is more about bigger ideas and concepts and less about how did you get an answer. Hmm. And I don't know that all teachers will go in that direction, but I am pretty convinced that's the right direction and that what concept-based teaching needs is a teacher who helps kids, I'm going to call it uncover the concepts rather than hide them inside some problem where some kids may notice it, but other kids don't. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There, It's good to know that although people are perhaps struggling with this concept, that it's not radically different. I love your approach. This is not a small much. tweak. This is yeah, kind of what you've been talking about for a long time. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Another question that I often get that I'm interested to have your, um, your perspective on is how we get parents to understand the way that we're teaching math, the processes, the skills. You often get these parents who are saying, oh, I can't even help my kid with math. It looks completely right. different than when I was there. Get any tips for teachers on how we might communicate that to parents? Indeed, I do. I think there's a there's a few fronts that this, this is not a one shot affair. This is something that you come at in a lot of ways. One of the ways you come at it is that you share with parents on a regular basis what you're doing. So in one of the newer resources that I've just in the process of completing, I provided teachers with a letter to go home with to parents for every single lesson to teach parents the math that their kids are doing in nice, simple format so that they don't say, I don't know what to do to help my kid because we're kind of telling them how to help their kid. So part of it is to be in communication with parents and help them understand what you're doing. But another piece of it is taking what I'm going to call uh, preventative action. So at the beginning of a school year, lots of schools that I've worked with have had what they call parent nights where they're very upfront with this is how we're doing things and this is why we're doing it and letting parents experience it a little, sometimes with the kids there. Um, so parents see it isn't like crazy stuff. It really is normal stuff. It's just a little bit more about kids understanding why they're doing things than just doing things. And my experience having done quite a lot of parent nights is that there will always be one or two parents who don't want to hear anything you have to say anyway and are just determined you are wrong and that's how it is. But my experience has been that's like one or two and that you'll have everybody else kind of on board. I can actually remember a night I was in Calgary and this was like where I had written some stuff that was considered, you know, out there and, and the school board was using it. 
And there was a group of 150 hostile parents who uh, they waited till February to have this meeting who had been angry for a while now. And honestly, there were only like four at the end who didn't like come around. So there are those four and I can't pretend I reached them because I didn't. But it's still pretty good odds. So I think if you talk to parents and help them understand how you're doing this in the interest of their kids, not because you're just like some wild and crazy person, and show them straight clearly how it is in the interest of their kids, I think they get it and are actually quite receptive. But I also think that you have to keep in communication with parents and, and, and not be hostile at all. So if a child comes in and he says, but my mom said you should do it this way, a teacher shouldn't jump on the kid for that either. There has to be a two-way street. Yeah. I I love that. I'm interested to know what you're really excited about in the mathematics arena right now. I mean, there seems to be like a lot going on. We've got uh, provinces adopting concept-based curriculum. I think that there's some really interesting numeracy. Pro- I'm interested to know what are you interested on? What are you looking at? Well, there's a, there's there is a lot of stuff going on. I um I'm so immersed in what I'm doing. I don't have time to deal with it all right now. What I what I think is the most important message for teachers is that they should they should learn to empower themselves rather than feel that somebody needs to give them something for them to do. So what I'm seeking, and I think what some of these new curricula are seeking, is teacher decision-making. So a lot of my work and a lot of the work I'm interested in is how do you help teachers make thoughtful, reflective decisions, not how do you convince them to agree with you. Mm. So my focus is on people who are not trying to tell you what to do, but on people who are trying to empower you to make your own decisions. I love it. I love it. Let's talk about education a bit more generally. Is there something about learning or education that you believe is true that you're finding a lot of people give you pushback on? I think there's a couple things. Um, there's a lot of a lot of belief that if a kid is struggling, just like give them nothing to do or hardly anything to do, and that's the way you're serving them. And I totally do not believe that. So it's my experience and belief that kids who struggle in one way might not struggle if you kind of change to a different direction. So part of what I am interested in education is really not giving up on kids as quickly as people do. Um, I hear too many teachers say, uh, well, he can't do it. And and I'm just saying in my head, he couldn't do it that way. Like you got to try another way there because my experience is indeed, I can't pretend everything's rosy, But a ton of kids can do things if you just change direction a little bit and give them a bit of space. Yeah. I think we spend a great deal of time, especially in a world of standardized education testing, um, on getting kids to, I'm going to say, interpret things the way we want them to. And I think our job is the opposite of that. Our job is to hear how they interpret it and go with them. (laughs) And so I want us to be the listeners, not the tellers, um, in that way, too. So if a kid sees a, quote, test question and has a different interpretation of it, but what they're doing is is thoughtful, why is that bad? Like, I haven't figured that one out yet. So I think we're still imposing too much. 
And people are spending a great deal of time preparing kids for these standardized tests. And I think that's a giant mistake. Um, I think to prepare them for a future, we want them to be the decision makers, not us to be all the decision makers. So I I think there's stuff like that. The other thing I believe is that um, you don't work on behavior. You work on being a better teacher and behavior just happens. So um, I believe we don't try to convince kids you do math because it'll help you become a carpenter or something. You do math because what you're doing is like so much fun, like you're happy to do it. So they're not even asking you why you're doing it because they're happy doing it. So I actually believe it is our job not to pretend that we're doing this for their long-term good. It's our job to make them enjoy the experience they're having and kind of everything else just kind of happens. Yeah. Engagement first. I love that. I'm interested in your thoughts around powerful learning environments. And, and one of the ways that I get at this is uh, is maybe a self-reflection. So when you think about the most powerful learning experiences that you've had in those environments and the people that were there, what do you think it was about that situation? What do you think those essential conditions are to great learning? Uh, maybe tied to some of your experiences. Yeah. Um, I think there's a few things. One is that it's social. So we are human beings and we are social. So there are times when a particular kid doesn't want to work with others and that's okay. Have better experiences when we're doing things with other people. So learning needs to have that situation. Um, Whether kids are standing up at what we call vertical non-permanent surfaces, which are whiteboards on walls, (laughs) which is great because kids are moving around. Um, or whether they're sitting at desks, kids need to be talking to other kids lots of the time. Um, we need, I think one of the, when I think back to my experience as a student, which is a while ago now, um, I still remember an experience at high school. It was, I was, I was in a class with what they call gifted kids. And so a lot of my colleagues, peers were smart little guys like me. Um, and we had a wonderful teacher who was probably not as smart as we were. And what I remember is um, from, I'm going to say like more than 40 years ago, he named a theorem after me that I figured out. And I still remember that. So that must be pretty powerful. So what he did is he put me long ago before this became common front and center. And our job, I think, is to make kids feel like they've contributed something special, not that they've just done what I asked them to do. So how do you make kids feel special is part of it. How do you make it social is part of it. How do you make sure that the environment is such is that you're taking the lead from the kid. They're not taking the lead from you. Um, They're doing more talking. You're doing less talking. You mentioned or you referred to the fact that you've been doing this for a little bit, and I'm uh, interested to pull on some of that lived experience. You Do you have a favorite success or a favorite failure or, or just a lived experience that you think about a lot that taught you an important lesson around teaching or that shaped how you think about teaching and learning? I think there's a couple. Um, one, so, actually, some of my experiences that shape me are as a parent and some are as a teacher. So I think as a teacher, um, I have been doing this a while and every once in a while I think, okay, I've done enough, like I'm done. Um, And then I'll meet a person who said, like you changed my teaching life and then I'm completely reinvigorated and want to do it some more. Um, So part of it is realizing that there are some wonderful people 
who really needed help and you're helping them and they tell you that. So that's another thing, by the way, about positive experiences. Um, we need to be positive, not just negative. We need to praise, not just criticize with each other as well as with kids. So part of it is um, that kind of collegial experience. Um, I've worked at a particular school who I even nominated for an award because I saw such collegiality and such collaboration in a group of teachers that for me, that was giant. Um, it seems to me that we still have too much living in our own room, closing the door and not enough collegiality. Um, I think I became a better teacher because I worked with colleagues with whom I became friends and who we talked about things. And so collegiality and sharing and all that stuff is important. And it's easier now than it used to be with the internet and so on. And so lots of my friends who are teachers have close friends who live who knows where, but they're like on Twitter together. So um, we need we need that kind of collaboration. The other thing that's interesting was as a parent. So I'll tell you this story. I hope my daughter doesn't listen to this. Um, <laughs> Um, my daughter is a, a physician, so she got through school just fine and she's doing just great, but she is in fact a kindergarten dropout. And so um, I'm just going to mention why she dropped out because this was an important story for me. She went to a kindergarten that I chose that was what you would call left wing. Um, you know, kids did choices and everything was like their own ideas and whatever a long time ago. But she didn't like it. And she cried every day. And it turns out that she didn't want all those choices. She wanted somebody to tell her what to do. And here I am, a believer in choices. And what this told me, which I think is important for every single teacher, is no matter what you believe, it's not right for everybody, that kids are different. So as a teacher, the most important thing I can realize is I'm not always right. I'm not always wrong. The world is gray, not black and white. I have to be different for different kids. Maybe I have to be a different person, different days I teach to reach different kids. Yeah. And isn't that why teaching is so difficult sometimes? And there's absolutely. an art and a science. I just It is absolutely that. an art and a science. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm interested to know, because you referenced it now, uh, you said you're still working on some, some new things. What is it that I you're am. working on? What can we look forward to? Well, if you uh, so one, my biggest project is a resource. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to name it, but I will. It's called Math Up. And um, it's, it's I, I call it a bookend because at the very beginning of my writing career, which was a, a while ago, I got to write a resource I loved and I was given like free reign and I got to do something which I still love. Then there was a whole lot of in the middle where I kind of did what I was told. And now I got to kind of do my thing again. And so this resource that I've done now is meant to empower teachers to learn from me, but kind of still do their own thing. Um, and what I love about it is I tell teachers why I made every decision I made. So I did this because, and I did this because, because I think that's what empowers them, for them to learn how a person makes a decision. And I think that's pretty unique. And so I'm pretty excited about that resource. So I give you lessons to work with, but then I say, this is why I did this, but you might change it to this um, because you might think this. And, and I think I, I'm quite excited about that. Some of my telling them is in videos and some of it is in text, but I'm pretty excited about that. I bet. That um, sounds exciting. I'm pretty happy. Um, I just am in the, edit, the final proof stage of a book I've written for the U S 
um, on um, on assessment and how. To, so this is focused on grades three to eight. And it's what does a full assessment plan look like for a topic? How do you do assessment for learning? What would you be looking for? What should you care about? What kinds of questions should you ask? How would you do assessment of learning? How would you teach kids to self-assess? So I've it's about it's nine or ten chapters, and I take a few topics and in depth show how it would go with some theory in the background. So that one's cool. Mm -hmm. And I am doing a new edition of a book I've had for a while called Making Math Meaningful for Canadian Students, which is kind of a reference book for teachers. Um, so I'm, And now it's being Americanized. So I'm working with a U.S. publisher to Americanize it. So got a lot of stuff going. <laughs> I guess we're going to have to change the name on that one if we bring it out in yes, the States. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. That, I'm interested. Is there a lot of changes? Are you, are you noticing between the Canadian market and the American market? Is there... Well, the, yeah. Um, well, the, the chapters on measurement are like a nightmare. So right. those have to change. Uh, I mean, not, not huge, but sort of huge. Yeah. Um, the chapters that talk about philosophy have to change some because the American sort of common core curriculum and they're kind of in flux on that too because some states are pulling out and some are not. So kind of dancing around that and changing like I in in the Canadian resource I refer lots to the way we do things and they do things differently I was just working on a chapter yesterday um in all of the Canadian curricula we spend a lot of time on something called capacity well they don't like that word they like liquid volume and they don't want so you know there's like little stuff like that um I don't think huge changes but enough that it's work right I totally understand. Probably the base <laughs> philosophy is the same and all the little annoying pieces and vocabulary. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, I get that's you. right. Well, let's say people are interested in your books. Um, let's say people want to uh, keep up with with what you're doing or when something new comes up. What's the best way to uh, to keep up with that to to know when those are out? Um, well, I do have a website uh, called oneToinfinity.ca where I kind of try to keep it up to date about what's going on. Um, and, um, I work with a, a few different publishers and they kind of put things out. But if you, if you go to my website or you Google me, you usually find all this stuff. And I've been pretty good. Even lately, I just updated to say, this is what's going on now. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter some, but I try not to tweet a lot because I don't want that many tweets back. Um, but I'm there. And if people ask me directly, I would notice it and I would respond. You bet. That sounds great. I want to thank you so much for sharing with us, uh, Dr. Small. I'm just uh, really excited to speak to you and, and excited about some of the new resources that you're bringing out. So thanks so much. No problem. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intersection Education Podcast. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi or Blackfoot, Métis, and Nakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and respect this land.